morning. It's good to be with you again. Um, oftentimes when you're uh, asked to come and fill in as a pastor or a teacher, uh, there's a temptation to kind of do like old rock, rock and roll bands, you know, and kind of like do a greatest hits and uh, go back and say, what were the really good sermons? Um, and, and, you know, kind of parade those out and teach old truths and um, old hits, as it were. But, you know, I'm not even a one-hit wonder. Um, so I don't have anything to kind of go back to. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is just to teach from where I'm being taught and hope that it's a blessing to you this morning. So if you can, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to be in Second Samuel uh, chapter 18. That's uh, page 228 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have the scriptures in hand. Hear what the Spirit of the Lord says. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David... Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick of branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, and while the mule that was under him went on, a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abshiah and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, And there is nothing that's hidden from the king. Then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time with you like this. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. The messenger was sent to David and he cried out to the king. All is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Mahiah's answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the King was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he wept, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, 
my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. My wife asked me, what are you teaching on this morning? And I told her, well, uh, the depth of Absalom. And she said, oh, cheery message. (laughs) Um, I think a little of the backstory of how we got to this passage or how the Lord led me to this passage would be helpful probably for you. But um, I have been reflecting upon the admonition in Ephesians for fathers in the rearing of their children not to provoke them to anger. You know, what does that mean, not to provoke my children to anger, but to bring them up in the admonition of the Lord? And here, in this passage, you see probably the most heart-wrenching cry of a parent in all of Scripture. And you see the consequences of what provoking your son to anger could lead to. Even for David. A man after God's own heart. A man after all the other kings in Scripture would be compared to. The standard by which all other earthly kings had been held account. And um, what I started to look at as I considered the question, what does it mean to provoke your children to anger, was what does it mean to provoke the Lord to anger? How is the Lord provoked? And the Lord is provoked as we forsake His ways and we forsake his instruction. And um, so I just began to do a survey of the Old Testament. And if you walk through the book of uh, Judges, I just began there. Um, and you walk through the book of Judges, seven times you hear the summary, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people. When they had no king, uh, when it was a democracy, as it were, when the Constitution were the commandments of God, they still did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then during the age of the kings, the first king that we see appointed, Saul, the question that is posed to him very early in his kingship is, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? David's son Solomon, it said of him, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And every king that you read about through kings and their accounts, 19 times it is said of the kings of the north, so and so was king and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The summary of their politics, the summary of their kingdom, their accomplishments, their hardships, what they overcame, What they instituted, all was summarized in one phrase. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Twelve times, or nineteen times in the north, twelve times in the south. In the southern kingdom, after the division, it says, and the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Four times you have a mixed report, and only four times do you have a report that says that they followed the Lord wholly, as their father David had done. 39 kings. And when you read the account, 
35 of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just like the people of Israel did during the time of the judges. And as I was reflecting upon this, I really kind of came to the conclusion that the legacy of human history, the legacy of any nation, the legacy of any family can ultimately be summed up in the phrase, did they do what was right in the eyes of the Lord or did they do evil in the sight of the Lord? Whether it's our political leaders, whether it's our people, whether it's our politics, this is the ultimate evaluator by which we're all judged. Is it evil in the sight of the Lord or is it right in the sight of the Lord? And as you study that phrase, is it evil or is it right in the sight of the Lord, that's what provokes the Lord to anger. And it's also what provokes our children to anger. Because they know what's right and what's wrong. And as a father, I've realized that the easiest way to provoke my children to anger is to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And David, in this season, is reaping something that he sowed. It says that David followed the Lord wholly, um, and he always did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that is not a um, minute-by-minute evaluation of David. We know David's history, uh, many of us who are familiar with it, of his unfaithfulness to his wife, of his unfaithfulness to his nation, of his unfaithfulness to his commanders by having committed murder, of his unfaithfulness in protecting his daughter against the abuse of one of his sons, which provoked Absalom to the anger that led him to murder that very son, to be left in exile, to be brought back, but then to be provoked by saying you're forgiven, kind of. I'll accept you, but I won't let you into my presence, is what David said to him. And some of you, that's your relationship with the Lord this morning. You feel like, I know he accepts me, but I don't really think he likes me. I feel like he's just kind of loves me on a technicality, but not with his whole heart. And if that's your relationship with the Lord this morning, I want to tell you that that is not the heart of God towards you. As we see, as we we will see in this passage, even as great as David was, David didn't do it perfectly. And David's heart that's reflected in this passage isn't necessarily God's heart. What I did note about David was, though he didn't do it perfectly, he does eventually do what's right when confronted. When sins gain a foothold in his life, he takes great pains to remove the cancer of unbelief and begin again to walk in obedience, in faith to God. But that doesn't always negate the painful consequences that sin brings. And when David fell from grace so Famously, one of the things that God told him was that he had despised the word of the Lord and had done what was evil in his sight and that he was going to raise up evil against him out of his own house. Now, what I take that to mean was that there was evil in his house already and God is raising it up. God is letting that come to fruition. God is letting what was sown come to a time of harvest and reaping. And God says, 
The sword shall not depart from your house. What you did in secret, I will do before all of Israel. And Absalom was God's instrument to chastise David. His own son. James put it this way. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. David's desire, when it was conceived, it gave birth to sin. And when that sin, named Absalom, was fully grown, it brought forth death. So what does this have to do with us today? This is a kind of an, you know, we've done away with kings, right? <laughs> we just celebrated 4th of July. That's our celebration of doing away with kings, at least kings of this earth. You'd be encouraged to know that uh, even the English don't think that King Charles was a very good king. Um, but we do all, regardless of our politics, give our life and service to something. We will be ruled by something. We will be ruled and we will serve something or someone, whether that be a political agenda, policies, whether that be family, whether that be financial affluence. We will serve something. Um, I think Bob Dylan said it appropriately. My in-laws are here. This is their generation. This is for them. Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I think that was his summary of the book of Judges and the book of Kings. Either you're going to do evil in the sight of the Lord or you're going to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. But you will serve somebody. And what we see in this passage was that David served his own self-interest. You see um, at the beginning prior to our reading and what the... um, the soldier gave an account of is that David had given a command for them to deal gently with Absalom for his sake, he said. So the, the, the ground for his command, the grounds for his law, the grounds for his proclamation was for his own sake, admittedly, for my own sake. Absalom, Absalom is leading a rebellion. Many men will die in this battle on both sides, on David's side and on Absalom's side. Many wives will mourn. Many children will be orphaned. Many people in the land will suffer greatly. And David discounts all of those and says, for my sake, the one who's bringing about all of this pain, all of this suffering, all of this death, all of this destruction, deal gently with him. It was a foolhearted request. And it was a selfish request. And the way that I see that this relates to us as a nation is that we are a nation of law, which is a great thing. We are a nation of rule, of government, of, of rights. We have a bill of rights. Um, but as I've been reflecting upon that, another situation in my life is that my daughter has gotten involved with um, some young teen organizations, Teen Pact, and she's going to Congress as a representative next month. A teen representative, not your representative. Just um, She may be your representative one day, but not yet. Um, but having conversations about her of, okay, what bill do I sponsor? What, 
what legislation do I promote? What party do I affiliate with? I, I see the strengths of this party and I see the concerns of this party and I, I resonate with some of these things, but I have some questions about these things. And, and uh, she's marking and I, and I just asked her the simple question of the, the least of these in our society, how does this policy or how does this um, bill or how does this party, how do these politics account for them? Whether you're a capitalist, whether you're a socialist, whether you're a communist, whether you're libertarian, democrat, republican, it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the question is, uh, in a society and in a world where those who ha- the haves tend to continue to have and the have-nots continue to struggle, uh, as people of God who are called to be responsible, that we are our brother's keeper, how is your policy going to impact the least of these? Not how will it benefit just you or your constituents who uh, may be middle class, maybe upper class, maybe, um, you know, this serves your own interest. But what, I, what she's beginning to see is that our system is a system of special interests. Our system has taken the rights that we've seen given and endowed to us by our creator and turned that into a competition where we're seeking to make sure that my rights or really my wants aren't impeded on by your wants or your rights. And it hasn't been, it hasn't produced the righteousness of God. We have a system that we are living in that isn't asking, is this evil in the sight of the Lord or is this right in the sight of the Lord? But uh, is this permissible? Is this legal? Can I get away with this? See, law... Even in the scriptures, law is a tutor. And what we end up with is a form of godliness, but no real power to change. So we can pass laws all we want. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That command doesn't make me a faithful husband. Doesn't make me love my wife well. It just draws the least common denominator. The speed limit doesn't make you want to respect the safety of others. It doesn't actually make you even a better or a nicer driver. Right? We have traffic laws, but it doesn't necessarily engender goodwill and and kindness to all those that are on the road with you, right? I I, I notice we recently moved to Johns Island, and if you travel in rush hour over Maybank Highway as you're trying to get over, that is like the bottleneck. And I've noticed that there are, there are those who wait patiently in the left lane, knowing that all these people on the right have got to merge at some point. And there are those in the right lane who go as far forward as they can until they have to merge and then just cut in line. There are the godly and the ungodly. You know what I'm saying? But what it made me reflect upon in my own heart is what's acceptable. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what the lane is there for. That's why they give it all the way down there to merge. And my, you know, my own disposition as I'm sitting in traffic is um, I could save myself 30 cars if I'll just go in the right lane. Um, and essentially, though, what I'm saying is in this moment, I'm just going to choose to serve myself. I could also just let all those other people go and be wait, patient and wait. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, and if you have made that trek and you've been one who's 
cut in line. Um, no, I'm saying if you've been one who's obeyed all the traffic laws and just went, you know, stayed in the right lane until you had to merge in the left lane, you know, there'll be a time of confession and repentance at the end of the service. <laughs> no, but there's nothing wrong with that, but, but the people in the right lane don't necessarily see that, or the left lane don't see it. What everyone's seeing in that moment is that's going to inconvenience me, um, or I'm going to cut up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get really close to the person in front of me. And no, you can't come over. You've cut in front of everybody, but you're not cutting in front of me. You know, like, this is as far as you come. Or I'm going to drive in the middle of both lanes so you can't get around me. Right? I've just seen it done, never done it myself. Um, But traffic laws, right, don't make you a better driver, don't make you a kinder person, don't make you a good neighbor, as it were, right? Um, Laws to not steal don't make you not covet. Laws to not murder don't make you... um, Say kind words to your brother, right? But Jesus said, if you say a ill will towards one of your brothers with your lips, you've already committed murder in your heart. So we can be a bunch of murderers that don't have acted out all the way. But the law, do not murder, doesn't make you a good neighbor. It doesn't make you a good brother. It doesn't make you a good citizen. Law is powerless to change you. And as great as our laws are, and as great as the rights that we have are, they don't necessarily make you better citizens. Because what happens is, because of our human nature, we tend to gravitate towards the least common denominator. And instead of saying, how can I serve? We say, how can, what can I get away with? How can my life be oriented to where I'm served as much as possible? Where I get my way as much as possible? I, you know, and I know there's a little give and take, but at the end of the day, that's really what I want to know. How can I live my life for me, for my sake? And when we live life that way, it's always at the expense of others. It's always at the expense of others. And David said, dealing gently with Absalom it's going to be at the expense of some others, I know. But for my sake, so that I don't have to bear that expense and that pain and that heartache, please deal gently with him. Now, in this story, there's another uh, gentleman who, if you're familiar with the story of David and, and that era of history, his name's Joab. And Joab's a different kind of guy. He's kind of a ready, fire, ask questions later kind of guy. He is uh, the judgment of God type of guy, the vengeance type of guy, and um, he's the one who has none of this and goes and kills Absalom and says, this man is leading a rebellion and justice must be done. He deserves death. He's rebelled. He's a traitor, even if he is the king's son. And so we see the messengers come to David and come and tell him, what has happened? And David, the question of David's heart is this. What will self-serving, what will all the self-serving that I've done in my life cost me? When it was the time for kings to go to war and I chose to stay home, when I was informed of that that woman was another man's wife, when I had an opportunity to come clean, but I instead committed murder. When I had an opportunity to discipline my son who abused his sister, when I had an opportunity to fully forgive my son who acted 
and vengeance. All of that that I've sown, what will it cost me? Will it cost me my son? It reminded me of the question that Micah asked. With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall my firstborn be given for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And so David is asking, as the messengers come, how is it with Absalom? And the word that he uses, the how is it, that question is the question, shalom? Is it well? Shalom? Is it shalom with Absalom? That's what his name is. The Father's peace. Is it shalom with Absalom? And when he's told, no, David, it is not shalom with Absalom. It is the most moving, one of the most moving, I think it counts in all of Scripture, as I mentioned. He is deeply moved and he weeps and he cries and he cries. He he continues to weep and mourn so much that in the next chapter, Joab has to come and confront him and say, David, you're in sin. Even in your mourning, you're in sin. You've shown us today that you would rather your son be alive and all of your servants be dead than your servants who wished well for you and who in the previous account who said to him, David, your life is worth 10,000 of us. Stay here so that you can be safe. We will lay down our lives for you. David, you've made it clear to us that you would be happy if we would have laid our lives down not only for you, but for your wicked son. And your wicked son who would rather see you dead. You would rather see him alive and your servants who love you dead. Repent. Turn, change. And David does. David repents. As I mentioned before, David doesn't always do it right, but when he's confronted with his sin, he seeks to do what's honoring to God and what's good for his people. See, David's grief was amplified by his guilt. He was convicted that he played a part in where Absalom ended up. And so his guilt aggravates his grief. But he also repents of realizing that it's not just about him because he's been given a kingdom. He is the king. He's not just responsible for his own beloved son. He's responsible for his beloved people. They are, in essence, all of his children. He's responsible for all of these people, not just the ones who are born into his household. And he realizes that his self-centered, self-serving ways have not only hurt his son whom he loves, but his people whom he loves. And he loved him. So as I look at the passage and as I reflected upon it and reflected upon the reality that laws don't really change us and to, that the, the thrust of the scriptures through this era has been Are you doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord? Are you doing what's evil in the eyes of the Lord? I thought, you know what? Um, 
the straightforward admonition to you to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord or it's going to really cost you doesn't seem to really capture the essence of God's heart. Do what's right inside of the Lord or it's going to really cost you. Something that you really love, you may lose. The reality is, is that you may be loving something more than the Lord. (laughs) And if you love something more than the Lord, maybe you should lose it. But my admonition for you this morning is to simply consider the heart of God in this situation and in your circumstance because laws and rules and commands, the commands of the king, they don't produce righteousness, right? The, the servant who forsook killing Absalom didn't do it because he was trying to honor God. He was doing it because he was fearful of the king. He said, I would have gotten in trouble. And Joab, you would have stood your distance. You would have served your own self-interest. Joab kills him to unify the kingdom, serving his own self-interest, and to get revenge for Absalom's setting fire to his field earlier. He's a very vengeful man. But everybody in the passage is serving their own self-interest. Instead of asking, what can I do to serve my fellow man? They're asking, what can I do to save my own skin? What can I do to save my own heartache? What can I do to serve myself? And I thought, man... As a father, that would be a great way to exasperate my children and provoke them to anger. Is to be a father who only cared about my own comforts and not about theirs, who cared about my own wants instead of theirs. It's kind of what brought me to the passage to begin with. So what, what, what has the power to transform that? What has the power to renew my heart and align it with the heart of God? And I think it's found in all of the little clues and passages or all the little clues and phrases in the passage. It says, The king was deeply moved and he wept. You know, that phrase is only used one other time in Scripture of a king. Jesus, when he went to the graveside of his beloved friend Lazarus, It says when he saw the people, he saw the sisters and everyone grieving, it says he was deeply moved, greatly troubled, and he wept. The other time that Jesus wept is when he called out to Jerusalem. It says that he wept over the city saying, Would you, even you, know the things that make for peace? Is it well... With Jerusalem, the city of peace, it was not well. You did not recognize the Prince of Peace when he came. See, Absalom tried to usurp the king. Absalom's name means, my father is peace. You could say he was a Prince of Peace. That's what my father is peace means, right? And Absalom, for his sin, was hung in a tree with thorns in his head, pierced through, hanging between heaven and earth. And it broke his father's heart.
and yet our Heavenly Father so loved you, so loved me, so grieved over us. See, David, the, the people were willing to give their life for David for a good king. He was willing to give their life for the life of his wicked son. Our Heavenly Father was willing to give the life of his righteous son for his wicked children. For you and for me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Is that the true Prince of Peace would come. The true Absalom would come one day. And instead of, for his sake, like David, this son of David would come for our sake. Paul tells us, for our sake, not for his, but for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That we might become righteous. See, that's the good news. The messengers brought good news to David. Good news, David. God says three times, has delivered up, has delivered. God has delivered. And there is great news. There is good news. But this good news comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of a son. And the good news for you is that our unrighteousness and our ways, our folly, our error, our sin, our seeking to come under out from under the rule of anyone and do what's right in our own eyes and to establish our own rights and to live for ourselves and to, that's been the evil and the wickedness of the, the world from the beginning. And it says that law is our tutor but it only produces a form of righteousness. It doesn't really change us. It says, but the kindness of God leads us to change. The kindness of God leads us to change. So if we're ever going to experience peace in our own homes, in our own country, in our own legislature, in this, in the history of the, um, in the history of the world, it's never been the people, it's never been the politics, it's never been the politicians, it's never been the policies that have brought about change. It's been the Prince of Peace, who comes and says, "Not what can I do? How can you serve me?" But who emptied himself of all of his rights. And didn't cling to them, but instead cling to the form of a servant and came down and said, how can I help? How can I be of service to you? I know it's going to cost me something. It may cost me time, may cost me money, may cost me convenience, may cost me my own career. In his case, the king of glory, it cost him his life. But when you consider the love of God that he has for you, when you hear that, Your question towards God and towards others isn't, what can I get away with? All of a sudden it changes. It becomes, how can I help? And it's being people who say, not what can I get away with, how can I be served, but how can I serve and how can I help? Those are the ones who do what's right in the sight of the Lord. So this morning, if you've struggled with the sin of selfishness in your own heart, in your own home, in your own community, dare I say in your own church. I just ask you to simply confess your sin to God this morning and thank you. Thank him for the love that he's shown you through his son.
Can you imagine what our world would be like? I think our country got a glimpse of what that would look like a few weeks ago. When evil and wickedness took front stage and our city loved and forgave with a with the grace that only comes from the glorious Prince of Peace. How could our city not end up upside down, destroyed, rioting, looting? What happened in Charleston that we are, not everything's perfect. Do we still have problems? Yes, we do. But how did our city recover and handle such an atrocity with such grace and peace. Can I humbly submit to you? It's because the families of those who suffered the greatest submitted their response to the one who suffered the greatest for them. Can you imagine if you and I would just do our little part, not in the big moments, but in the little moments? (laughs) Just in the little moments. So if you're driving on John's Island during rush hour, join me in the left. <laughs> join me in the left lane. <laughs> and pray for those on the right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do show us the way of peace. That the true Prince of Peace demonstrates the righteousness of God in the sacrifice of His Son. Pray that those things would be the things that would move us, that would matter most to us, and as we consider Your love, we would become more loving. We ask it for our sake, for Your glory, and in the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen.